morning. I'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 32. Exodus 32 is our text this morning. All 35 verses, Lord willing, we'll be looking at together on this Lord's Day. Thinking about ministering effectively to one another, which requires knowing God and man. Every member in Christ's body is called to minister. We might have model ministers in the church, leaders who are supposed to lead by example, but the great Protestant doctrine that we have before us is that every member is called to minister to one another because our mediator, finally, once for all, is Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you accept your call to minister to one another so long as you both shall live in this geography? Do you accept that you are endowed by God, energized by God, for the purpose of ministering one to another? This is what it means to be a member of the body of Christ, to be a minister, a topic we're going to explore today. So what is required that you might minister to each other? Well, in two words, informed prayer. Informed prayer. Prayers that are informed by the lives of the saints around you. Prayer informed by knowing each other, but also by knowing God. You must pray for one another as if to stand in the gap for their sin with God, if that were even possible. It's not that you're the mediator, as we'll see today, that role is taken. But it's that you do petition the Lord on behalf of your brothers and sisters because of His promise for you. We all know how the story ends. Christ is the answer. It's the Sunday school answer. It's the answer to the sermon. But seeing what it looks like in the Bible to see Christ foreshadowed, Christ come, and us living in light of Christ's fulfilled mediatorial work on our behalf. Now that's special. And it is in Him that's how we learn. Not only to mediate our differences, but to pray for one another effectively in Christ. I'm thinking about prayer today because that's where my mind goes when I think about intercession, when I think about petition, supplication. I was reading the first chapter of a book a praying church, a commendable book, and I want to share a little bit from the foreword in the first chapter. The author wrote, The battle to pray is not mainly a battle against prayerlessness, but a battle against discouragement, and against cynicism, and against unbelief. That's where the battle lies. I mean, the Christian knows they're supposed to pray, but they get discouraged, they're cynical, if this is true of our individual lives, and it is, including mine, how much more of the life of our local church? Exodus 32 is a rally cry to pray. To be a church where prayer is not one dutiful activity among many, but prayer is the nuclear core of all we do, which is to say, to do church, catch this, as if God is here. That is to say, to do church as if God is here. And if God is here, well, we get to that when we walk through the text, but if God is here, and we understand that from the onset, there are all sorts of implications for how we worship together and how we pray for one another, how we live our lives. In order to pray well for your fellow members, you must know God and man. An increasing proportion throughout your life. That's how we pray well. And this reason, among others, is why Moses modeled effective mediation for God's people. A desire to have a profound understanding of both God and man and his work to flow out from there. In our text, Moses, the mediator, demonstrates this for us. In order to serve people well, we must also seek to know God by his word, not by images, not by some golden calf, not through idolatrous 
seeking, but by his word that he's given to us. We must seek to know God in order to serve people well. As simple as it sounds, you must seek to know people. I mean, the condition of people, yes, but also these people, like a specific people, their sins, their predispositions, and how to protect the flock from spreading sins, how to stand in the gap for them and love them into discipleship, even when they don't deserve it, because let alone, I know I don't often deserve it. We see this with the narrative arc of Exodus 32, as well as the character contrast between Moses and his older Levitical priest brother Aaron. Listen for the contrast between the two as I read through Exodus 32 in a few moments. We, of course, see a fallen yet used by God man here that points toward a greater mediator that would come, one that ever lives to intercede for us, a prophet like Moses that is not Moses, but the one that we worship. And that, of course, is the God-man himself, Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us hear a straight-through reading of Exodus 32, 1-35, to where we will find that God tells Moses of the people's sin in the first six verses. And then we're going to hear about Moses interceding the first time in verses 7 to 14. And then from verses 15 to 30, we're going to hear Moses seeing for himself the grave sin and need of confession of the people. And then finally, we're going to see Moses again meeting with God to intercede for the people a second time. And that will be what really points us to how Moses is pointing us to Christ. So let's hear now the word of the Lord, all 35 verses. It says in Exodus 32, 1, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods. O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. But, but Moses, uh, but Moses implored the Lord, his God. And so, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Verse 15. Then Moses turned and went, down from the mountain, with two tablets of testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the working of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Then Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted. He said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp, but he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. 
And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scouted it in the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you've brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let anyone who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained, ordained for the, the service of the Lord each one at the cost of his son and his brother so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever sinned against me, I'll blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you, Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made a calf, the one that Aaron made. May God bless the reading of his word and administer his grace unto his people. First, let us consider God telling Moses of the people's sin. Verses 1 to 6. Moses wouldn't have otherwise known. He's up on the mountain and the euphoric presence of God, being ministered to by God, understanding what the people needed to keep with the covenant, how they were supposed to live as God's covenant people. For near six weeks, he's been in the presence of God. He's to come back down and convey to them the ceremonial law that would dovetail in with the priorly given moral and civil law. He was to tell them about Exodus 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, and even 30. Texts that you've heard preached from this pulpit in previous weeks of the glorious instructions of the tabernacle, which was to convey that God wanted to be with or to tabernacle with his people. And what you'll find is in verses 35 to 40 of Exodus, the last five, verse, five chapters of Exodus, you're going to find, Lord willing, preached that those instructions about the tabernacle turn into construction in those chapters. And so what is going on in verses 32, 33, and 34? What's going on, I mean in chapters rather, 20, 32, 33, and 34, what's going on in chapters 32 to 34 is this sin problem and what they're doing is they're trying to solve a problem that doesn't even exist. That's what we do, right? We kick against the goats whenever we try to solve problems we perceive that God hasn't informed us is actually a problem in his economy and his way of doing things. They want to solve the problem of God not being with them. And that's the problem that God is exactly about the business of fixing right on top of the mountain. He's conveying to Moses how his people will be with him. And they're at the bottom, impatient, rebelling against the very God that has provided for them. And Moses gets told about it 
from God. God's not caught off guard. He never is. God's all-powerful. He knows everything. But Moses perhaps is caught a little off guard. This problem that they created that doesn't exist, how could they possibly so soon rebel against the God that had provided salvation for them from the hands of the Egyptian slave masters? It's as if they couldn't believe that the ordinary things, the, the lack of the, the overwhelming miracles that they'd experienced so far, manna from heaven, destroying the, or defeating the Amalekites, plundering the Egyptians, carrying off their gold. It's as if they couldn't believe that without this, this sort of mega example of God's presence, that God wasn't with them. Even though they'd watched their mediator go right up that mountain with a promise to come back. We were thinking about this text this week and thinking about our own selves. I mean, we get a little bit antsy about the return of Christ, don't we? I mean, we're supposed to hasten the day of the Lord's return and pray, come Lord Jesus, come. But if we were to get gut level honest, that promise seems off in the distance to be fulfilled, doesn't it? And it can be a little difficult for us to worship God in the manner He's prescribed us to worship Him in what seems like ordinary ways through the ordinary means of grace. It can seem to us to not quite be enough for us. And by that, I mean not enough because we want something mega. We want something flashy. We want something that God would do like manna from heaven. I think it's important for us to understand that disposition, that tendency, and to consider this morning that most of the Christian life is lived in the ordinary. And that God is no less with us in the ordinary. And that God is not less pleased with us when we pursue obedience in the ordinary. I think it's a very important truth that comes right out of this text. Because what happens when we begin to try to fabricate extra stuff is we have a tendency ever so subtly to call on those that lead us to lead us down a path of novelty to lead us down a path of make us something else to supplement our worship of God. Do you see that here? Look at Exodus 32, verse 5. Tomorrow, the end of it. Tomorrow shall be a feast to whom? To the Lord. All caps, L-O-R-D, the divine name. The Lord. They understand what they're doing as supplementing their worship of the Lord. They're adding to, perhaps they're adding to gods to God. At the very least, they're trying to create an image of God. And what had they been called to in the moral law? Not to create any graven image. They're not supposed to do that. And they did. Unless you think that we cannot fall into these types of sins and then immorality as a result of it as they played and lying as a result in it as he said, oh, well, this calf just came out. And misuse of craftsmanship as a, as a result of it, designing this thing with my own hand. Lest you think our, our treasures and our gold can't be misused, you must understand the condition of man. For we are prone to sin. We are prone to ask of our leaders things that we ought not ask and insist on things to supplement our worship of God that we ought not insist on. I'm reminded of 2 Timothy chapter 4 on this score as I was preparing to come to this time to preach. These verses came afresh to me in relation to this first section in Exodus 32. It's Timothy's instruction from Paul, the apostle, 
under the inspiration of the Spirit. And 2 Timothy 4, 1-5 says this after having already established that Scripture is God-breathed, all of it, and, after, and later saying in this text that, that you get a reward, an award reward for finishing the race and he's about to die and all that. He gives these instructions about the, the, the time of the life. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, he charges him to preach the word. You know, that's what a, that's what a pastor is supposed to do. He's supposed to preach the word. It's word-based. It's not images. It's why you don't see a whole bunch of decorative stuff in here. The plainness of worship. It's about the word. It's about elevating Christ through the preached word. And he says here, be ready in season and out of season, all the time to do what? To reprove, to rebuke, to exhort. Well, I don't like being rebuked either. Do you? You know, I don't like that very much. Exhort, exhortation, you know, we don't want too much of that. <laughs> with what? Well, with complete patience and teaching. You know, it's not just me pounding this pulpit and just exhorting, exhorting, exhorting. I'm supposed to be patient. I'm supposed to teach through texts and help you understand. But also there's this edge to it, Right? Word of God has an issue, so this is the thing we're doing together. Verse 3 there says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But what will they do? They'll want golden calves for their ears. They'll want itching ears. They'll understand that there's a word aspect of this ministry, but I want you to tell me what I want to hear. I want you to be a hireling. And they will actually accumulate for themselves these types of word preachers, these types of teachers. Why? Because they'll tell them what they want to hear to suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth because of it. It becomes a self-fulfilling type prophecy. And they'll wander off into myths. They'll get away from it further and further away. That's what happens when we accumulate for ourselves false teachers. And he says, though, for you, Timothy, and others like him, I think, for us, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I'd like to key in on that last word as we flip now back to our text today in Exodus 32. I'd like to key in on that last word, that ministry, because it's not that Timothy had a ministry that no one else had. It's not that every member is not a minister. I mean, certainly it may not be, it's not probably most of you's lot in life to stand here and to do this. But what I'm doing is supposed to be, with the help of God, to prepare all of us to minister to one another. It isn't a standalone thing. It's to reverberate through the flock for the good of the flock. And we are prone to do this for ill-advised reasons. And you are prone to want us to do this for ill-advised reasons. And when ill-advised reasons, motives give way, we wind up with golden calf-like episodes. And you know, a golden calf is really more like a golden bull. It wasn't this little bitty calf. It was a symbol of strength. There was an Egyptian god sort of like this that a lot of commentators think is where this idea came from. But basically, they certainly took the gold that they plundered, that God allowed them to plunder, the beautiful gold that God allowed them to take out of Egypt with them, and then fashioned a, a godlike figure from Egypt to symbolize strength, something they could, they could touch, something they could see, something they crafted. What folly is this? But they, they did it, and we are prone to it as well, to gather for ourselves Aaron's instead of Moses, right? A brother said this week that Aaron is the type of intercessor that we too often want. But Moses is the type of intercessor that we need. I mean, we can just imagine it, right? I mean, what do we hire this guy to do? He's spending all his time in prayer. I don't know where he's at. At least Aaron's here. Tell him what we need him to do. Which one's feckless and which one's fruitful? You answer the question, will you? But what do we want? We want the Aaron, don't we? We want that Aaron that'll tell us what we want to hear. Why? Because that's easy on the ears. But what do we need? What do we need? What do we need? Do we need an Aaron or do we need a Moses? 
And you see the difference once Moses sees what's actually going on. Let's see if we can take a gander at that. You see the difference once Moses actually sees what's going on. You see in verses 1 to 6, for all that could be said about it, Moses is ethereally talking about it. He hasn't seen it yet. And so then Moses is told by the Lord in verse 7 to go down and to see it. And even before he sees it, I ought to comment here somewhat parenthetically, even before he sees it, he's already interceding for the people based on the report that he's heard. He's already operating differently than Aaron. Just, just refresh yourself with what we've already read. Look at verse 7. When he's told to go down, the Lord tells Moses to go down. And he says to him, these people have corrupted themselves so quickly they've turned aside from the commands. They've made these vows. You may be like us making baptismal vows. I'll fight the devil and his works. And immediately, what happens? There's sin temptations. We're tempted by sin. And sometimes we fail, right? And so there's this, this weight of sin. What a great sin you've committed is repeated in our text today. So he's told to go down. They've done this so quickly. They've made a golden calf. They're worshiping it. They're actually modeling their bad worship a little bit based on how I told them to worship. There's these things they're grabbing from, but they're doing it idolatrously. They, they don't understand how serious I am about my spoken word. They don't get it. You're going to help them get it. And God, I think to test Moses, offers him a, a kind of a deal. Listen to how this rolls out. And put yourself in Moses' shoes. Might sound like a pretty good deal. He says, it says, the Lord says to Moses, verse 10, what about the stiff-necked people? Let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation for you. Now, is it God's intent to squash all those people, hundreds of thousands of people, like a bug? Is it? If it had been, what would have happened? Been squashed like a bug. All-powerful God. Supremacy of God. What's he doing here with menial by comparison Moses? And for us, well, he's teaching Moses something about what it means to minister. And if we'll let him, I believe he's teaching us something too. What does it mean for Moses to minister? I mean, I'd be tempted to say, yeah, squash them like a bug. I'm in the right. I'm clear. Good. Right? That's not what word preachers are supposed to do. I'll let you in on a little secret. Too often, your pastors, your elders, we fail at this. Present company being the cheapest among sinners. But again and again, the word calls me back to the fact that I'm not supposed to sit in a seat of judgment against you, even when I can clearly see your sin in ways that you want to obstruficate and justify. I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to pray and call to the mediator and intercessor to help you. That's what I'm supposed to do. That's what you're supposed to do for me. I'm supposed to set an example of it. That's what we're supposed to do. That's a lot. That's, that's kind of full of yourself, aren't you? Like, you really think you're that self-important? No, I really don't. I think that's what the Bible says. We're supposed to pray for each other like that. I, mean, I don't really need that. Then you don't understand the golden calf at all. You've totally missed Exodus 32. You don't get it. You don't understand the weight of sin. I mean, how do we ever get to the cross? It's not some moral example. He was hung on the cross for you because of your great sin. That's why. You want to image something? Let your mind go to that. Pure gold put on the cross for wretched sinners like me and you. They say, well, yeah, but, I mean, well, that was done, right? I mean, he did that for us, so, I mean, we're good, right? What kind of cheap grace is that? Why would we have ongoing mediation from Christ if grace was cheap? Why would we be taught to pray for one another if grace was cheap? Why would we be instructed to continually confess our sins, that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness if grace was that cheap? At such a great cost, he bought your salvation. And that's the only lens by which you can understand the Christian life and really bask in the mercy of God. It's through your great sin. That's how you bask in the mercy of God. That's how you get there. And Moses, for all of his shortcomings, and they're recorded, 
he's learning to get this very important point that we're trying to get today of how to do ministry in the life of the people. And look at, look at what he says. He offers him this deal. How about I make a great nation out of you? You know them promises I gave to Abraham? How about we just funnel them right through you, Moses? Kill them siblings you don't like that you've got all this rivalry with that get on your nerves. Get rid of all them people down there. Let's just do this. And kind of like Ephesians 2 gives us a but God, here we have Moses actually reflecting God's desire here. But Moses. What does he do? He implores the Lord on the Lord's own terms. But the Lord's reputation, the Lord's reasoning, with his promises. And here's what he says. He implores the Lord as God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Whom you have brought out with the, of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. And, and why should they say, that you did this with evil intent, just to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger. Please relent. You can almost hear the prayer of petition and him helping, coming to help the people to confess their sins. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Please remember the patriarchs, your servants, who weren't exactly sterling in their reputations either, by the way. Remember these people to whom you swore by your own self, of whom he could swear by no one higher, I'm going to multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. I'm going to fulfill my promises. And what does the Lord do? Well, he relents. He relents from the disaster that he spoke about bringing on the people because it was always a lesson for Moses anyway and a lesson for us. And that takes us to our third part. Verses 15 and following where Moses' ethereal hearing about it becomes sight. And at the end, we get his second intercession for the people after he's seen. So in verse 15 and following, Moses goes down to see the sin for himself, leading the people to confess their sin. They had committed rank idolatry. Idolatry is putting your trust in something or someone in place or in addition to God. I wonder today if you practically put something or someone in a place of or supplemental to your trust in God? Is it the approval you need from someone? If I just get this and I have Jesus, then I'm, I'll, I'll be all right. Is it, is it you need someone to love just right, and then if I have that, then I'll, I'll be content with my Christ, you know? Is it some kind of a, an object you need, something you need to purchase? If I just have that, that house, that car, that boat, that thing, then I'll, I'll, be, I'll be good. Is it an experience? Is it some kind of a vacation or a trip of a life? Now, if I just get that in Christ, then I'll, I'll be good. What if you don't get that? If I just get peace in the body, then I'll be happy with my church. What happens when you don't? What happens when you have to pray for people? They're stiff-necked like you and I so often are. What does that look like? If I just had a certain education level of attainment, then surely I'd be happy. No, you wouldn't. If I won the big great game, I'd be happy. Probably not. What is that thing or that person that you put your trust in practically in addition to or in place of God, and that's your idolatry? That's where you'll commit adultery, is right there. And sins must be named. They must be named so that we can move past them to the grace of God. When Moses goes down, he destroys the object of their idolatry, which in this case is a golden calf, as aforementioned. And then he rebukes the leaders that have led in this, aided and abetted in this, giving in to this temptation. And then he speaks to them about judgment for sin. What we might think of in, in modern terms of, as discipline, in terms of, I shouldn't say modern, I should say new covenant terms. Similar action, just a little bit different vehicle. Listen to what Moses does here and how he interprets it as he comes down. So he, he comes down, verse 15, he turns and goes from the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and the back, they were written 
The tablets are the very work of God, the writing of God. So we see God's about words, not images, right? This iconoclastic debate from the 8th century and afterward. We're on the right side of this in the West, I can tell you. It's about word-based ministry. It's not about a bunch of icons that we venerate. So just to say that, not to be triumphal there, but we need to be clear about that. And it says in verse 17, Joshua heard the noise of the people. And I'm not going to reread all that, but remember, he's thinking about it. as he's Remember, Joshua was the aide to Moses, and he's thinking about it in terms of war cries. And maybe thinking back to the Amalekites and, and what he knows about war. I mean, he himself will, will need to know things about war for his, his mission in life. And he, he says, it doesn't sound like victory or defeat. It sounds like they're singing worship songs. They had literally co-opt, co-opted the singing of praise to God for what their itching ears wanted for their type of worship and life pattern. They literally ripped it off and just kind of put a little of this together. And, and, and God was just all right with it, right? I mean, God was good. As long as there was enough stuff in there for him, he's fine with an otherwise good life and comfortable life, right? That's what's going on. Is that how you read Exodus 32? The answer is no. God's not all right with it. And you, you'd probably say, well, I mean, that Old Testament God, he's kind of severe. That's not my lovey-dovey New Testament God. D- do you know what a crucifixion is? I mean, seriously, I'm not trying to insult your intelligence. Have you meditated on what a crucifixion is? It's the most criminal, peasant, uncitizenry-like, torturous, elongated form of punishment that you could put on any man, let alone a man that was without sin. The God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament. And He isn't severe in the old, and He isn't get-out-of-jail-free in the new. He just puts the accent squarely on the cross for you. And you either receive that or you burn in hell for all eternity because that's the only way to get to God. That's it. It's only through Jesus. It's the only way. And I plead with you today, would you put your faith in Jesus? I'm not asking you if you've had a church affiliation. I'm not asking you if you've lived more years than me. I'm not asking you if you're too young to have understood it all. I'm asking, do you know you need the cross? And will you receive Jesus as your own? Because he died in your place. He stood condemned for you. And if God is to be understood as severe, the severity of God was taken out on Jesus Christ on that cross. So you could, so you could live. He stood in your place. You see, what's going on in this text, if you fast forward to it, is Moses is trying to sort of do that. But he's just not perfect for it. But he's certainly showing us a type of what is to come He's clicking on some right cylinders here, although the motor's not firing on them all yet. Consider what he sees, just kind of in in speedy fashion, and then what he does with regard to trying to atone, because that's really where we need to lean into in this next portion. It says in verse 19, as they're singing the word in this all-idolatrous worship with their unrepentant sin and their confusion and their disdain for Moses and their desire for an intercessor like a preacher even, like, like Aaron. And here's what it says. It says, Moses' anger burned hot, kind of like God did once he saw it. And, and he throws the tablets down as if to say, you broke the law, you broke the word of God. Here it is broken right in front of you. I'm disgusted. What last six weeks I've been doing this, I don't even know what you're doing that. I can't even believe that you so quickly did this. Verse 20, he takes the calf they made, first they burn it up, they throw it down, he makes them drink it as if to say, go ahead and excrete that. What you just did, that's no better than dung. Feel it go down through your intestines. Understand the sin that you have committed against your God in your pores. And then Moses rebukes Aaron, kind of sort of like Peter got rebuked by Paul, if you read about it in Galatians 2. And he asks him a question. Why did this people do, what did this people do to you that you brought such a great sin upon them? And the reason Aaron, sorry he's all over it, is because he didn't really do much of anything. They just sort of leaned on him real hard and he kind of caved. Because that's the kind of a man that he was. He was left in charge, Aaron and her, at the foot of the mountain while Moses goes up. Law receiving. Law giver. And now Moses is going to have to come down. Not just knowing more about God, but also knowing the condition of man. He's going to have to to mediate for the people, as best as he is able in that epic, in contrast to Aaron. Listen to what Aaron does. It's, It's too often what people like me do, to be frank. Cut to my core reading this text. It's too often what pastors do. I mean, we should read this 
And we should read it as an indictment on us and not on you, that we might be able to serve you, that you might be able to confess your sin, that we might be able to minister to one another better. Aaron says, hey, don't be mad at me, Moses. Don't let your anger burn hot. You know these people. They're set on evil. They're not good people like us, Moses. They said to me, make us some gods, because we don't know what's happened to Moses. I mean, he could be dead for all we know, eaten by a wild animal up there. I mean, surely God's not strong enough to protect the man that he's given the law to through. I mean, think about the, just the nonsense of this argument once you can see it for what it is. But we make these kind of justification arguments too. We don't know what's become of this guy that brought us up out of Egypt. So, so we need some help here so we can worship rightly. Give us some kind of an experience, Moses, or I mean Aaron. Verse 24. So they wanted to give me the gold. It's all on them, right? And they gave it to me, and, and I didn't craft anything. I mean, I don't want to take responsibility for that. I just threw it in this fire, and psh, God made this calf. He's lying. How many commandments is he breaking? They've had orgastic behavior, so they're breaking that commandment. The worship, all the worship commandments. They pretty well broke the whole Ten Commandments, all in the whole thing, right? And what's going on here? Aaron, he throws it in his fire, out comes the calf. He's, he's, He's not just blaming Moses for being gone too long and the people for how bad of sinners they are by comparison to him. Far from taking responsibility for them and trying to stand in the gap for them, he's going to blame them. That's not what a good shepherd does, by the way. It's not what faithful members do in the body of Christ. We don't just blame our fellow members. We look at them and we say, but for the grace of God, I wouldn't even understand what I understand about sanctification, so I want to help that brother or sister. How do I help them? How do I help save them from themselves? How do we get all the way home through this grace operation? That's a new level for you members. I know it's a new level for me, but that's what the Bible is calling us to, empowered by the Spirit. You want to see more unity? Start looking at how to help that brother or sister overcome their sin. Instead of just looking at them as sort of other. Glad I don't have that problem. Who does that sound like? Sound like the widow's mind of the Pharisee. I'm glad I'm not like that, sister. Sure glad my home life don't look like that. A lot better grandparent than that one. Huh? And so it goes. Aaron or Moses? And he rebukes Aaron, and Aaron indicts himself with the way that he talks. It's not God's fault. not Moses' fault. Aaron needs to take responsibility for this. Moses had seen just even the witness they'd put out there for those outside the camp. And it is a bad witness when we are eating each other and eating everything we can instead of feasting on the Lord's Supper and sharing the gospel of Christ. And Moses saw they broken loose like that in verse 26. So Moses stood in the gate of the camp, and he, he, it's not often that we have to give ultimatums like this, but there's times in the life of God's people you just got to say, whose side are you on? You remember Joshua said, choose today whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so what happens? There's a lot of sinners out here, but what happens? People have this opportunity to repent. And so all the Levitical priests gather around Moses. And, I mean, this is a period of time, I think. I don't think it's just like seconds. And he said to them, Thus saith the Lord, in a way that I couldn't say. I'm not Moses, and the word's been written down. And I'm not giving you a law. I'm teaching you the law. And, and I'm teaching you the law of Christ in light of Christ. But what does he says? He says there's a principle here, right? Who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. All the Levites come, and he said to them, Thus said the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro in the camp, throughout the camp, from gate to gate, and each of you kill your biological family, your neighbors, because of their unrepentant sin. And that's what it meant for them to be faithful, to be ordained to the ministry, was to be so faithful to God and his word that they would understand death as a natural consequence for sin, And then in this particular segment, they would teach the people about the severity of sinning against God that all the people might not have to die with the 3,000. Did you notice that? 3,000 people, men, died that day, representative probably of the hundreds of thousands. He could have killed all the people that were standing with him. He didn't do it. He kills 3,000. Where else have you heard 3,000 in the Bible if you were to think forward? The day of Pentecost. Peter's first sermon, the beginning operations of the church. It's no less serious than what happened on Mount Sinai. It's just the new covenant iteration of a people that would need grace too. 
that would need to repent and show faith. Not before a God that is severe in the way we think of severe, but before God that is serious about man and about himself. And he's right to be serious about himself. He's the creator of the entire universe. We ought to be more serious about him. He should never be less serious about himself. He's perfect. And he offers relationship to us. And this text teaches us about it and points it toward us. It says at the end of verse 29 that this act of judgment, by this act of judgment, salvation comes. They were to be cursed, and now they're to be blessed. They were obedient to God. Now, God's not calling you to kill your sinful neighbor today, not at all. If you read the New Testament, what he's calling you to do is help them kill their sin. He's calling you to help them put to death the sin that's killing them. not calling you to take their life. He's calling you to call them to eternal life through ministering to one another and praying for one another, offering supplications to the Lord for the very sins of the people that you've covenanted with. We take more time to explain that in light of the life of the church. I'm just going to have to hope that you'll take it for face value. That's not the nature of the sermon. But it is the way the New Testament reads. And this text then thrusts us into atonement. Look at verse 30. If our third point was Moses goes down to see the sin for himself, leading the people to confess their sin, many of which did, then our fourth point is Moses preparing to go back up the mountain to meet with God and intercede now for a second time, even at the cost of his own life, no longer just reasoning for the people, but willing to die for the people as he goes back up the mountain. Listen to how it reads. so important. Verse 30 could go with any section here, the third batch of text or the fourth, but I want to read it with the fourth so it frames verses 31 and following. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. Great sin have you sinned. And now I will go up to the Lord. Why is he going up? He wants to. This is really beautiful. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Sin is grievous. It can't be swept under a rug. He wants to make atonement. He wants to make it right. And, and, and how he thinks about it, he, he goes to the Lord. And I, I can't help but think about Abraham and think about Isaac in Genesis 22 and how really Isaac was going to die as an atonement. And what happens instead, out of the very last second, a ram comes out of the thicket and they kill the ram instead of Isaac. And there's a whole substitute imagery there and a lot going on. And I spend hours and hours thinking about that. But I can't help but think that Moses, who authored the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis and Exodus, I can't help but think that he's thinking about that when he, when he reasons this way at the cost of his own life and even of his own soul. This is, this is an example of mediation that frankly makes us uncomfortable, but it's there to be read. It says that Moses, verse 31, about atonement, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now, Lord, if you'll forgive their sin, please do, if you'll forgive their sin, if this what we've done with these 3,000 and, and the call to repentance that wasn't heeded by some and for the many, if that, if that gets added, okay. All right, but, but God, I know, I know you're God. I'm not. I'm, I'm kind of trying to interpret a little bit here for you. Then please blot me out of your book. I, I think you see in, in Romans 9, 2 to, 2 to 4, the Apostle Paul picking up on this kind of, of reasoning in Romans 9 when he says, I would rather Israel be saved and me be damned. I don't think you could say something like that tritely and not mean it, but apparently these men kind of meant it. And, and, and the Lord does not take him at his offer, but the offer is no less made. And the contrast between Moses and Aaron couldn't be more stark. Moses wants to give his life as an atonement for these people. And Aaron wants these people to die as an atonement for him. Which one looks more like Christ. Which one points us to the gospel in this instance? It's Moses, right? And I'll read the last verses again, but really just understand. That's it. I mean, that's the thrust of it. The Lord said to Moses, whoever sinned against me, I'll blot them out of my book. I Unrepentant sinners. Verse 34, but now go. Lead the people to the place I've spoken to you about. My angel will go before you. 
I'll visit their sin upon them. I got this, but, but you've learned a lesson here, and all of my people will learn a lesson by reading this in perpetuity, I think is the way to think of it. And the Lord did send a plague, and we'll get into that. And he blames, puts the blame on Aaron where it is. It's the calf that Aaron made. All that's how 30, 32 ends. And we get more on these themes in 33 and 34. And we get to talk about these things, about Moses as a mediator in this sense. But let's consider here for just a few brief moments the way in which Moses is a type pointing to Christ as the mediator. When Moses intercedes this second time, He's, he's heard and seen and experienced firsthand the cost of rebellion against God. In a sense, Genesis 1 to 3 happens all over again with the creation of God's people Israel, if you think of Genesis 1 and 2, and Adam and Eve, and then Adam and Eve's sin. And what happens, like Aaron, they're blaming each other. Aaron's like, well, she did it. It's that wife you gave me. It's the same kind of a thing all over again. God, God constitutes a people, they sin. God constitutes a people, they sin. Creation, fall. What do we have to have? God has to provide redemption and consummation. That's salvation. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. That's the storyline of the Bible. It's to provide it. And all the way, all of this is pointing toward the mediatorial office of Christ, typified by Moses and now experienced by us in Christ, the mediator. And so what happens here when we look at this is similar to the kind of language that we get in the Baptist Confession. When in the Baptist Confession, it says the following. Christ is is to be described as the mediator between God and men. Full stop. The mediator. Any interceding in prayer we do presupposes Christ fulfilling the office on our behalf, actively standing between God and men, like 1 Timothy 2.5 says, advocating for you, not on the basis of your profession, but of his own perfection on your behalf. He died as a substitute for you. And so the confession summarized Scripture so well when it says, God was pleased in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them, to be the mediator between God and humanity. Full stop. The mediator for us, between God and humanity. Rightly understanding God's godness, rightly understanding man's sinfulness, he could provide redemption. That's the mediator. And there's nobody else to pray through. There's no other mediator. The Virgin Mary is not a mediator. You don't pray through other saints. Christ is our all in all. He is our mediator. Moses only points to Christ, as beautiful as he does in Exodus 32. He's just a type. He's just pointing toward the greater fulfillment in Christ. He says, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Jesus says, I will make atonement for your sin. And he did. He says, I'd rather go to hell for your sin. And Jesus says, I'll go storm the gates of hell and redeem you from your sin. That's our Christ. For the the best of men would lay down their lives, not just for their friends, but for their enemies, right? But Jesus lays down his life to turn enemies into friends. Think about Exodus 32, 32. Now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, blot me out of your book. And then think about Hebrews 10.10, the verse that we read, the brother read for our assurance of pardon today. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for. I'll just hold that thought for a moment. Having been sanctified through what? The body of whom? Jesus Christ. For how, how long? Always. Once for all. How does God forgive sin based on this verse? Through Christ. Not through your work. Through Christ. That's what motivates the better works. Is it's through Him. How does God sanctify the saved person? Look at this verse. Through the offering of the body of whom? Through your self-flagellation? Through your death? No, no, no. Through the offering of the body of Christ. How often? Once. For whom? All. All of God's people. Once for all. 
We can't say that, can we? When we say sin, like, like at the movies, once and for all, we can't keep our promises, but he can. That's what Hebrews 8 is about. Perfect and eternal. He doesn't just intercede for us for a moment. He's able to do it for all time because he's seated at the right hand of God. This is our Lord. This is how 3,000 rotting corpses at the foot of Mount Sinai can give way to 3,000 clean baptized lives in the first church sermon at Pentecost. This is how there's no more condemnation in your sin. Romans 8.34 says, For who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is doing what? Interceding for us actively right now. So what? So as we read in unison, no distress can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing can keep you from Him. No disaster. Nothing can keep you from Christ. This is our intercessor. Satan accuses Christ intercedes. Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus Christ our Lord always lives to make intercession for the saved. Always. Not sometimes. Not when you really hold your mouth just right and ask for it. He always lives to make intercession for the saved people. Who's the saved people? It's those of us that believe the gospel, right? And so it's right to say that Jesus is actively making intercession. Christ Jesus our Lord for you. Satan accuses, Christ intercedes. I haven't been to church in a while. I feel guilty. I come to Jesus. He sanctifies me by his body for all he intercedes. I slip back into looking at images on a screen that make me more in line with those playing in Exodus 32. I feel guilty. Satan never accuses the members, but I draw near to God. Jesus calls me back. He sanctifies me by his body for all he's interceding. I've worshipped based on what's comfortable for me, rather than how God prescribes worship. I haven't seen the big issue with what we do in corporate worship. I'm slowly starting to see that God doesn't just care that I come to worship, but also how he is worshiped. And I feel some guilt for how I've handled the things of God. I feel guilty I come to Jesus, he intercedes. I've made baptismal vows to God, but I've fallen short. I'm faced with the guilt of whose side am I on? I'm tempted to side with biological family that remains unrepentant rather than spiritual family that fears God, like the Levites in Exodus 32. Satan accuses me. I appeal to Jesus again. He brings me back. He intercedes always, whispering into your ear, you're mine. You're on my side. I'm new to this thing. My sins are getting real to me. I see God has commands for me to follow and that I'm not following them very well. I feel the weight of it all. There's shame involved in my sin. I'm not sure my steps forward. I don't even know if those pastors would look at me different if I told them. I'm not sure how to go forward. My sins are so many. And Satan accuses you. But Jesus shows you by his body that his mercy is more. That you're valued by him. That he was on the cross in your place for you. And he wants to live to intercede for you. He offered himself. Only believe. Give sin no safe haven. Christ is your harbor in the time of storm. Even shame storms. He lives to intercede for his own. Come to Jesus. I'm old to this. I'm not new at all. I justify my sin more like the 3,000 judged rather than confess my sin like the thousands who stood on the Lord's side. My sins of self-justification are many. I'm wondering, is Christ more? He intercedes for you. He strengthens you this very hour. And you're refreshed again by his work as your mediator. He never fails in his office. He never fails to minister. Finally, I'm old at this, and my sins are old too. My ministry to my fellow members here is far too often like that of Aaron rather than like that of Moses. I blame these people rather than standing in the gap for them. This word teaches me afresh my real acts of ministry are to be humble and praying for the people, not just about ailments of their body, but about ailments of their soul. How sin cripples my fellow members, and I'm too often indifferent about it. How often I actually aid and abet their sin, by my flippant attitude toward the breaking of commands and my lack of courage toward confronting confrontation for my fellow believers. 
Satan accuses me. Jesus restores always, always, always interceding for the saved. Come to Jesus. He will never leave you or forsake you. Perfectly man, he knows what's in a man. Perfectly God, he knows what saves a man. He is here, tabernacling among us, and he will make that unseen reality seen on the day of his return. Hasten the day of the Lord forever, always for us. Pray, minister obediently in that strength. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's bow our heads to think about the Lord Jesus Christ now.